Well, the title of this talk is Self-Management of Misfortune and Belief in the Efficacy of Protective Amulets and Charms, which should indicate that, I've, because of it's such a vast subject, I've concentrated on those amulets and charms which do with uh, illness and things like that. And we've divided it up into several uh, subheadings. first part is the law of charms and medical folklore, which is sort of an introduction. Then I go on to amulets and charms as such, and I'll follow that with um, information about amulets and charms in London museums, followed by amulets and charms in Britain generally, and also, I'm not going to forget it, uh, amulets and charms in the Pitt Rivers Museum. And then there's a sh very short conclusion. Well, the wearing of charms to ward off ill luck or evil spirits, it did in fact begin, they began as adornments millennia ago at the dawn of human history. Africa evidence that we have, which is from some 75,000 years, shows that shells were used for adornment. In Paleolithic Germany, mammoth tusks we know were intricately carved and engraved into charms or talismans of around about 30,000 years before the present. Prehistoric amulets were made from shells, animal bones, fossils or even fashioned from clay. But later amulets became made from wood, stone, rocks and eventually precious gems. Um, ancient Egyptian amulets were worn mainly as identification but potentially sometimes as uh, totemic items. They were also used as symbols of belief and good luck, as well as prophylactics for good health and to fend off illness. During the Roman Empire, tiny emblematic fish charms were secreted within the clothing of Christian individuals, and in Judaic law, tiny inscribed passages inside amulets were worn near the heart. Well, figure one here is the Egyptian example of Egyptian amulets, and you have to see it. Figure 44 there is a frog. That's used as a symbol for a god, Tarbo, I'll mention later. But it represents life as embryo, and is worn for recovery from disease. 46 is a pillow. That's used for preservation from sickness and against pain. And 51, the vulture, is there to protect from scorpion bites. The other two are, are Gnostic symbols, which also use worn as amulets for health. The next one. Next one, this is just examples of Etruscan, Greek, Roman, and Oriental talismans, which, as you can see, represent different things. And the next one is an example of the uh, Jewish amulet which I mentioned just now. Um, amulets therefore appeared throughout history, they're not a recent innovation, and across many cultures and in an infinite variety of forms. Charms were worn in the belief that they obtained favour for their wearers. Many amulets were seen as protective against the evil eye, Wearing amulets and charms, often in the forms of beads made from gold, silver, bronze, coral or clam and cowrie shells, played an important role against the evil eye. 
This is just, I've selected this. This is a, a selection of amulets and charms. I think they are mainly from the Welcome Collection, but they show the great variety of amulets and charms that, 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 that there are amongst people. But also I'd like to say that charms and amulets are not just simply specimens of folklore. What is needed to, to understand is that the belief is crucial to an understanding of this superstition. Now, in order to go into it a bit further, I've decided that perhaps if I outline synthetic magic, well, magical remedies, rituals and explanations were passed down by word of mouth from one generation to the next, either as folk tales or as a religious discourse. And the effect of oral transmission of belief, and I think we all still realise this, persists even after the original reason for the belief has long ceased to exist. So the theory of sympathetic magic and similarity and contagion originated with the works of Sir James George Fraser, being the next library assistant in the two I couldn't avoid reading his books. Fraser argued that magic, based on two principles, first, that light produces like, or that an effect resembles its cause, and Fraser called this the law of similarity. In other words, the magician is inferring that he can, he can produce an effect by imitating. Secondly, things which have once been in contact with each other continue to act each other, and Fraser called this the law of contagion. Therefore, the magician is affecting an object, and the person who is in contact with the object is also being affected. Therefore, early healing was supposedly obtainable by what is, can be seen really as homeopathic principles that like do as like. So the sympathetic magic, or the law of sympathy, can be subdivided into two branches, which becomes obvious. Firstly, the homeopathic magic, or the law of similarity, and secondly, contagious magic, or the law of contact. So charms are based on the law of contact or contagion. They can be described as contagious magic. Magic based on creating the illusion of creating reality, and by doing so, the magician believes he's actually doing this, he can actually control external reality. So amulets and charms represent, in truth, an appreciation and the practice of personal, sympathetic or homeopathic magic by an individual. Well, superstition, because I'm going to have to mention this because it does come into an understanding the use of amulets, superstition is in our rational belief in lack, omens, spells or supernatural powers. And we all realise that from time immemorial, people throughout the world have had this mystic reverence for the so-called unknowable. So the study of amulets and charms, it means that we've got to investigate their special connections with particular cultures. So an amulet has got a specific purpose because it is worn to benefit from its magical properties. The most interesting feature of superstition is the remarkable array of objects associated with magic by folk all over the world. Amulets and charms have been adopted, that are adopted by individuals 
or perceived by these individuals as intensely personal. So charms and amulets, what they're really doing is internalising a magic that embraces the belief that the external world can be changed by man's subjective attitude to it. One little aside I have to mention is folk, knows folk medicine and quackery. Now, folk medicine is really the comprehension of charms, incantations, traditional habits and customs relative to preservation of health and the cure of disease. Therefore, prophylactic amuletic folk remedies have received, because of this, actually much less attention than curative treatment itself. So medical folklore flourished alongside and overlapped with medical quackery. Now, the derivation of quackery is quite interesting. It's from the farmyard, literally, because those who were called quacks were called so because they resembled ducks in the sense that farmyard ducks because medical quacks advertise noisily with strident examine exclamations, their wares and their ability to deal with disease. So quackery flourished, therefore, in the absence of doctors and treatment and medical advice. Quackery therefore found a niche when ailments were offensive, repugnant or untreatable by physicians. So what did people do? They turned to homeopathic magic and superstition and by resorting to magic in preference to science and medical opinion this indicated that they had a hope that they would find a way out of a medical problem. Right, now I can come to really amulets and protective charms. Well amulets are similar to talismans and the word comes from the talisman, the word comes from the Arabic tilazim, or talaz, til, tilazim, the intention to bring good luck and protection to the wearer. In the mid-15th century, the term amulet, or amulethis, came from the Latin amuletum, probably related to a word amuleri, which means to avert, to carry away, to remove. Therefore, the earliest meaning of the word is found in the natural history of Pliny the Elder. Um, it was not recorded, the word was not recorded in English until 1600 and it wasn't known in Middle French until between 1595 and 1605 when it was called amulet. So an amulet can be traced to Arabic hamala which means to carry. Talisman is from the Arabic tilazm the Greek telesma, which means payment, or Greek telei, which means to complete or to perform. In other words, what is, the, what is in being implied is an initiation into a mystery, and therefore it is also used as a synonym for amulet. And most amulets are objects of common origin, and as I've said just now, they have considerable variation. They are also objects used by ordinary people as protected charms. It can be any object that has been assigned a magical function by a single person, and it can be an object that has a meaning recognised by most peoples of a culture. It mattered not how it lacked in sophistication, the essential point was its magical power. The magic of these prophylactic charms was inherently linked to their physical presence. It doesn't matter what they were made of, or where they were made, or how. 
An amulet, therefore, is anything worn as a charm against evil, disease, or witchcraft. And as I've tried to say before, the worldliness of an amulet is in fact its meaning. As objects, they also possess a commonality. They can confer protection by causing harm, by conferring upon the possessor the ability to resist magic, disease, death or misfortune. Amulets can also protect people and property against assumed evil by causing injury or harm to opponents, threats or malign spirits. Therefore, these varying amulet types confer protection against different evils and these such, this protection is dictated by the needs of the owner of the amulet, the wearer of the amulet. They confer protection by their presence and retain potency as long as the wearer retains his trust in it, his or her trust in it. Therefore, the validation of amulets and charms is that people who may wear them believe in them. For these artefacts are examples of sympathetic magic, which means the appearance of an object resembles the cure it is believed to offer. And later on I'll show some examples of this. And by their prophylactic role in warding off disease, evil, and bringing about good luck and harmony, amulets are believed, therefore, to be endowed with magical power. People believe in amulets because they're important in their lives. They shape their attitudes, spirituality, well-being, even life and death. Amulets are assumed to be efficacious either when they're touched, held, or kept close against the body. As such, they've been referred to as objects of solace, because they've been invested with hopes or beliefs that somehow they mediate on behalf of the owner. So amulets have a twofold role for their owners, therefore. They're familiar to them, but also because they're highly individual. They're also peculiar to them. Many charms have been made in the process accompanied by magical rituals and the potency of the charm, therefore, is reinforced by ritualistic processes. And people believe in charms because these magical objects are embodiments of the anxieties felt about human frailties. They have the assumed power of drawing on the dark arts superstition and magic. But the properties of charms, though, are not necessarily those of amulets. Charms, unlike amulets, can transfer their effects across distances. Charm only acts in ways specified by tradition, and its effects are limited and defined. Whereas a charm is worn in order to avert misfortune, some objects are neither amulets nor charms, but objects used in ritual or instilled with a supernatural power. But one of my favourite examples really because this I did write a simple about it, the hold stones. Hold stones are stones with natural holes in them which formerly believed to have magical powers of various kinds. These stones are found in many places as standing stones, small perforated pebbles, or as large hold rocks. There's a widespread belief in the magic properties of naturally hold stones, some of which are called hagstones or witches' stones. Prehistoric man we know attached magical properties to fossils. The small hold stones carried in the pocket 
the thought to protect against witchcraft. There are many names, some are known as hagstones, witchstones, <coughs> holy stones or holy stones, dobby stones, adder stones, and in Scotland they are referred to as mare stones, wish stones, nightmare stones, and witch riding stones. We can put number five. These are examples of holy stones. These probably picked up in the week somewhere. I think these are probably a piece of writing. And then the next one, that is an am that's an amulet, but it's also known as a hold fairy spying stone. You use it to look through the hole to see what a fairy would see to determine what future. The superstition concerning nightmares believe a hold stone at the bed's head. You put it at the end of your bed. During the night, it prevents the nightmare and it's called a hagstone. But hags were supposed to turn up during the night and give you your nightmares. The hold stones were in Europe regarded as prophylactics, therefore, for bad dreams and nightmares. They're also regarded as magical as early as the beginning of the second millennium BC. Perforated stone amulets were seen as hostile to the crafts of witches and protective against the evil eye. Upper Paleolithic groups in southern France, when they came across fossil echinoids, which are fossil sea urchins, they, they found them while they were flint working, and they used them, used the regular shaped ones, uh, which, which are known biologically to us now as Cigaris and Diadema. They regarded them as magical objects, and this was also uh, regarded as, they were also regarded as magical by the Celtic peoples thousands of years later. Pliny the Elder, as I mentioned before, he related a story of an object called a snakehead, which was used by Druids and is known as Ovamanguinum, and that was invested with great magical powers. One natural philosopher, well, naturalist philosopher, he valued sea urchins as an antidote to poison. His name was Boot, which is 1609. Fossil echinoids, sea urchins, from Dolmi, Vestanichi, and Czechoslovakia, they came to be known as Jews stones. Their shape suggesting usefulness in treating the urethral and bladder troubles according to sympathetic magic, magic treating like. Another stated the bodies called Tekalisi by Pliny, Lapidus, Judeaci, and Syriaci. They were celebrated for ancient physicians for their diuretic properties. And this, this carried on, this belief lasted for more than three millennia, producing Jewish stones as talismans. The earliest record of uses was in ancient Greek during the 24th dynasty, around 650 BC. In Denmark, numerous fossil urchins have been found that were used as amuletic pendants during the earliest centuries AD. And the use of whole stones was very, very common. Some holes were known as holy bolets and similar to hold or holy, the very mention is hold or holy, they often confuse the whole with the term holy. Um, the amuletic use of such stones, in other words, they're, they're using a mystical remedy. The belief in the magic of a hold stone was not its substance, not the stone itself, but its perforation, it's the whole that had the pendant properties. And this was what it bestowed its value. And oriental snake stones, which ones you see had marbled markings, they were used as protection against 
snakes are called Draconitis or Draconita lapis because they resemble the skin of a snake, like treating like. And the forms of beads, depending upon religious and magical beliefs, is a generally accepted opinion. What a lot of people don't realise is that beads can be seen as a serial assemblage of lots of tiny holes. Another quick piece is touch pieces. You've probably all heard of touch pieces. Well, they're coins and medallions. They're attached to superstitious beliefs. And they're known as touch pieces because they're believed to have a prophylactic property to cure ailments and disease. Um, the commonality is in their name, and to be effective, they have to be touched, they have to be in close contact. Only in this manner can the permanent magic power contained in the coin be transferred to the person to be treated. Once done, the touch piece effectively becomes an amulet. Touch pieces used to cure disease were used to treat rheumatism by rubbing the coin on the affected part. Medallions with images of a defeated state and the meat, Satan were minted in Britain and they were specially made objects. They were charms distributed amongst the poor to reduce sickness and disease. Yeah, I wouldn't need this. But an interesting part now. These are amulets and charms in the London Museums. Hmm? Okay. But London has retained evidence of folklore and folk life. During the 20th century, it was accepted, a accepted view, that magical and superstitious beliefs are really only associated with rural areas rather than cities. And this is not true. As a metropolis with a long history, it's apparent that its size and history as a mixing bowl of people and a level of traditions and customs, London has a certain unity and super, superficially a, a common culture. Amulets deposited in London's museums collections now form a repository that reflects the concerns and beliefs of the population of the capital. Edward Lovett, who was of the Council of the Folklore Society, mounted an exhibition of charms at Southwark's Central Library in Walworth Road in 1917. And this shows how widespread were superstitious beliefs in East and South London. Fortunes of individuals were affected by some inanimate object deemed lucky or potent against disease. And there are, and were in London, variants of a universal or national law, an example being that folk Whooping cough remedies were recorded as much in London as the Midlands. Edward Lover, <coughs> personally he was, he was a London bank cashier. Near cashier. He eventually became uh, quite important in the, in the Bank of Scotland in London. He was an amateur folklore collector and he amassed a trove of 1,400 amulets and charms. He devoted much time and effort to collecting from market vendors herbalists and costermongers in working-class London from the 1880s onwards. His now mostly forgotten collection is scattered around London in the Wellcome's Collection, the Cumming Museum in Southwark, the Science Museum and the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, where they are basically archived but rarely seen. Lover also dealt with the Birmingham Museum in Forest Hill, South London, the Imperial War Museum, and the Bethnal Museum of 
using the children. For the welcome collection, Henry Salomon Welcome, between 1853 and 1936, that contains some 4,000 amulets, including dead animals and meticulously carved shells. Well, these curiosities were sold to Welcome by Edward Lovett himself, who scoured London, mainly after dark, seeking and buying from the city's mudlarks, sailors and barrowmen. And the Welcome Museum Medical Collection was opened in 1913, 54A Wigmore Street in London, but it is now located in the Science Museum. Well, Lovett sold to Welcome a bronchitis... A bronchitis necklet from Bermondsey in 1940. It's a pair of moles, dried moles from King's Lynn. It's a pure treatment against rheumatism. And he also collected a small amuletic boot used on the entry of this, well, I can't just get rid of the ocean of these. Small amuletic boot used by a Surrey regiment man between 1901 and 1916. And they're all displayed in what uh, Welcome called the Hall of Primitive Medicine after 1914. And the emphasis being on exhibiting a material culture as objects of knowledge in their own right. And this is what Welcome and Lovett saw amulets as. They were valid, valid artifacts that had their own right to be studied and understood. Well, the Edward Lovett collection, the, the 14 amulets, there's that's a group of his amulets, he collect, that's one of his 1400 total. He denoted these to welcome, and he really represented what can be described as a paradigm of middle-class respectability. He spent his working life in the city of London and rose to be chief cashier in the Bank of Scotland. Well, figure eight, that's his collection of charms. Well, as a folklore collector, he explored a very different side of the capital of England. He was president of the Croydon Natural History and Scientific Society in the 1880s. And just like the house of General Pitt the Caterham home of Lovett was filled with this vast collection of his charms and amulets. Included, there were examples from the First World War, British soldiers who travelled to the Western Front with good luck mascots and charms. Pinning on these amulets, British Tommies, they, they sought protection in action, and some sold old farthings into their braces for protection by being close to the heart. And some talismans were made from used cartridges with one bullet charm engraved Frank. This isn't in the Pit Rivers Museum collection, I don't know where it is, but it is an illustration from a book called Trench Art, which you can buy in the Pit Rivers Museum shop. And for much of Lubbock's collection, as I try to concentrate on, they were medicinal charms, therefore welcomes interest in Lovett's collection, because it's the Welcome Collection itself, it was also a medical collection, and they were, examples, they were regarded <coughs> as examples of sympathetic magic. Well, Lovett's hoard of amulets captured something of the beliefs of everyday Londoners from a century ago. Items of his curious collection of charms were carried in the pockets of Londoners for luck and protection. Uh, example of this is a West London medical inspector for schools informed <coughs> mother that children 
you put in it finally. Children wore necklaces of glass beads to ward off bronchitis. And these necklaces against bronchitis, especially the blue beads, which most of which were actually imported from Austria, they were never to be taken off. They usually comprised 34 beads, and they were worn underneath the clothes. Lover, in to get these beads, he visited 64 or 60 lower class shops throughout London. And with each shop that sold them, recognised them, and sold them as a pure bronchitis. These examples of coral beads, which were also used, had a charm against sore throat, and it's a specific type of coral. But these beads are not necessarily confined to London. It's you know, it's not wasn't just London. This blue bead law has been traced and found from Cardiff to Newcastle to Ramsgate. It was a British-wide phenomenon. Well, amulets and cures for rheumatism, they were abandoned. You know. Potato or knuckle bone, which is an astralgus bone from a sheep, a dead bone supposedly that will absorb the affliction. And it's carried in the pocket for its efficacy. So were small sealed leather covered glass tubes containing mercury and they were carried in the pocket by sufferers. And these files were from the pharmacist's company called Allen and Hanbury, who still was selling them in 1924 to London. They were carried by many so-called city men and refugees from Belgium who were in London as a result of the First World War. Um, they wore cat skins for rheumatism and chest complaints. I've got an example <coughs> of a bone. You, oh, that's the map. That is the map of um, where he bought the, like, bought the uh, blue bees. And you can see it's quite well distributed right across London. It is a well established phenomenon. The next one is the bone for rheumatism. These are bone charms against rheumatism. Another one of general childhood prophylactic was a necklace of acorns around the neck. There are some examples of this in the Pitlis Museum. A necklace of nightshade was thought useful helping an infant cut its teeth. Whitechapel Jews employed orris roots to relieve sore teeth and gums. But orris root is Iris Florentina it's chosen for its resemblance to a human figure. The male figure of an orris root, one that resembled the male, was used to cure the boys, and if it resembled a female, then the girls got it as a treatment. Um, but among non-Jews, they just non-Jews didn't bother to make a sexual discrimination, they just used any root. Um, in South London, many teeth-cutting charms were available. Box of calf's teeth, sometimes child and mother's own teeth, which were kept when she lost her first They were kept, were put in a bag around the baby's neck, and they were recommended for difficulty in cutting teeth. That's a flint necklace, that one there, used for even tooth pains. And another sue that was the lost tooth of a girl, and it was saved until her own children were born, so she could use it to treat her own children by not cutting their teeth. Hmm? Yeah, see there's other chance 
Tea. Like for like, using tea as a remedy for teething. Yeah. Whooping cough or pertussis, that was used, well, it was treated in Bethnal Green in 1913 with a small scrap of child's hair. It was placed between two slices of battered bread and the following day was given to a dog. They threw it out the door and waited for a dog to eat it so that the dog would take away the pain. Other therapeutic oddities include remedies for cramp, which were in Kent. Fossil sharp's teeth were from the London clay, I think on the Pitt Rivers in one of the places these can be found. Cramp stones, they are carried in the pocket and regarded as very effective. And some sharp's teeth were sold in London street markets as a cure for cramp. A hyoid bone from the sheep is in the throat was thought lucky against drowning and popular in a port such as London. In the north, this amulet was called Thor's Hammer. Another fossil worn during the 1850s, during the smallpox epidemic, was a brooch made from Madripoor coral, coral, the mother of pearls from tropical reefs. And that is the coral that you saw, the pink coral, is Madripoor coral. Um, well, we can come now to amulets and charms in Britain, even though I've mentioned some. But despite awareness of the existence of healing charms from the Middle Ages, modern academics have largely neglected this aspect of popular magic. There was a long-term interest in Anglo-Saxon and medieval charms and amulets, as well as traditions attached to them. But during the Anglo-Saxon period, including written talismans and spells as charms against fevers, ague and toothache, charms became widespread during the 18th and 19th centuries. And children's ailments appear to have been more for prevention than other branches of folk medicine. In other words, there seems to be an overriding concern for prevention in childhood. Because as we know in those periods, um, a lot of children died anyway. But in Oxfordshire, more local to us now, there are many examples of amuletic folk medicine. Many folk charms are in the sympathetic magic collection of the Pitt Rivers Museum, <coughs> whose efficiency is based purely on superstitious beliefs. Bellum knights are fossil squid-like cephalopods. The remains found as bellum knights or bullet stones are deemed as thunderbolts from the heavens and had a celestial origin. Being supernatural then they became endowed in the popular mind with medical virtue. In Oxfordshire they treated an oral ailment in children. So overwhelming was the faith in the thunderbolt. In 1899 a piece of bellamite belonging to a Mrs Yates of Garsington was used to treat children's white mouth. Powder scraped from the fossil, and this one is in the pit, was mixed and given in water. The actual disease is frictional keratosis, or white mouth, and it's an eruptive disease of the lips. In 1900, an oxen man carried round with him a flint resembling a leg and swollen foot, believing it helped him against gout. A wooden remedy of folk medicine prescribes against croup and whooping cough. Alone in the fields, find a branch bent and rooted on, onto the ground. Pass the child line through nine times underneath this bow structure through the natural arch and then it will cure the, the, the child of whooping cough. Another example was a bramble from Horsepath Common in 1898 
because it thought if you, if you passed the child through the branches, the disease was actually transferred from the child into the soil. Silver-mounted lodestone pendant um, was carried by Mr. Blaine from Paddington, suspended above his stomach, carried this to avert the King's Evil and to cure his fits. And the King's Evil was really known as scrofula or tuberculosis of the neck, and often the King's Evil was treated with a touchstone. Well, in England itself, in general, homeopathic charms are found throughout England where Holdstones figure in folk remedies. We've mentioned already the Holdstones, but in Lincolnshire, nether stones or adder stones hung round a child's neck to cure whooping cough, or adabites and a the chill or shivering fever. And such amulets are also used to treat pertussis in the offspring by ordinary people as well as educated people. Odd numbers are important in folklore medicine. To treat potassis, a nine-knotted string, has been nine knots, tied round the child's neck in Lancashire, Leicestershire and Worcestershire. In West Sussex, childhood for convulsions were cured by placing peony root and mistletoe amulets around the neck. Old stones used as charms were widespread throughout England. Between 1800 and 1850, there was a popular belief on Tyneside that a stone of Irish origin possessed the virtue of curing out a bitten cattle. In 1884 another Irish stone was collected from an old woman near, living near Blanchford Abbey, Northumberland. And the family heirloom used often for adabites. Interestingly, the banks of the Derwent, the Tyne tributary, were at that time infested with adders. A rickety Yorkshire child be drawn through a large holy stone. Hold stones had many different names and magical uses, including repelling witchcraft, disease caused by spells, and again the infant evil eye. In Cambridgeshire, hold stones were put under the bed to prevent cramp. Ammonites were invested with the supernatural in the belief they were petrified snakes. So once again the concept appears like treating like. Fossil crinoids, which are our sea urchins, also known as St. Cuthbert's beads. Or fossil achene, these things, are also referred to as shepherd's crowns. Humalites, which are coral crinoids, are referred to as fossil money or little money. You see, the geology of the Whitby area in Yorkshire has large numbers of these fossil cephalopods or Ammonites, and the Whitby snake myth contains the idea that the fossils were coiled snakes petrified by St. Hildred of Whitby, and in Kensham and Bristol, which is miles away, the it is believed that, by the, that the Celtic virgin St. Keen turned snakes into snow Ammonites, or snake stones as they call them locally. And hold stones had superstitious associations with fishermen and holy stones, which are really naturally bald sea roll flints on the Italian side the bales of Weymouth boats. Madron in Cornwall Madron in Cornwall has the crick or creeping stone. That's not it, there's another one in it. If a lumbago sufferer crawls on all fours through its large hole, nine times against the sun they will be cured. And the man and toll, which is this one, which is not far from the one I've just mentioned in the same parish, 
Mothers draw their children through that hole nine times against the sun as a cure for rickets. When you come to Wales, there's a few there. In Wales, stone charms of great repute are snake stones, referred to as Arkant, where you work. I can't pronounce what Med Madrilaglan Madras, and described by Edward Lloyd, Lloyd as Kerky Druid. Oh, druid stones, in other words, they call them druid stones. And the other one, which I couldn't pronounce, means bead of the adders. And such snake stones are called adder beads in England. And there's a superstitious claim that they are derived from snakes. They bring good fortune and are required for eye afflictions. Mean means stone, muggy or muggle, means ancient eye or sty. A, a cure for rabies is called the, there we go again, Clesfen or hydrophobia stone. And the Overmanguinum, which I mentioned earlier, is a fossil from Wales, and they're referred to there as sea eggs, which in the tradition of the beads called milprev, literally a thousand snakes, they're regarded as healing amulets, and the word can also be found in Cornwall. In Scotland and Ireland, there are many names with, with or such supposedly magical properties. They're called snake buttons or adder beads again. Cockney stones, this is not Cockney from London, but Cockney stones, or Echinites piligata. It's a minor fossil found in Flint. Toadstones for preventing house fires. Snail stones or small glass cylinders to cure sore eyes. A mole stone, or again, blue glass rings. Blue glass again. Similar in purpose to snail stones. Shower stones are possible variants of meteoritic star stones. And again, ones that Balfour used to write about, thunderstones. The Scottish sea urchin fossils, as I've said, they're often called cockney stones. They're used for magical medicinal purpose. In Aberdeenshire, there's the shagar stone from which children, again, they pull through to strengthen them. And at Col and the Hebrides, people suffering from consumption crawl through certain holes and leave, then leave an offering. A kelp of green quartz mounted in silver, sewn to an officer's belt as a cure for a kidney complaint. And beliefs in magical medicine and superstitions are found in many places in Scotland. In the lowlands and the highlands, and they you fall them, they use an extensive variety of amulets and charms. In the west of Scotland, a child is assumed at risk from the effects of the evil eye before baptism, and as a protection, the remedy is to bathe the newborn immediately in salt water, which it then must taste three times, and for hawking cough, an anodyne necklace of beads, once again beads around the neck, is, 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 is placed as a necklace. The diphtheria recently removed cat's fur is placed <coughs> around the neck or scratched the neck with mole's claws. And a spider in a well sealed goose curl placed around the neck will clear a thrush. Similarly, a piece of red flannel wrapped around the neck of a child is thought to ward off disease. Red flannel is still used by people. Later on, I think they call it sermon. <laughs> In Morocco, whooping cough is treated with a neck amulet of a camel's windpipe. And prophylactic action to prevent convulsions in childhood includes biting off the head of a live mouse and hanging it as an amulet around the child's neck. In Ireland, in Balamina and Antrim, flint arrowheads were boiled in water as a cure for cattle gripe. 
Superstition being flint arrowheads, the thunderbolts, elf shot, and elf darts. Supernaturally make the water palliative. An Irish custom is a twig of mugworth or twigs of wild wormwood carried as a protection against the evil eye. Evil eye, actually, um, wormwood. But if you don't make absence out of it, it's a very, very good worm treatment. And seeds of Entrada scandens, and these are in the Pit Rivers Museum. It's a tropical forest giant, giant bean. They drift on the Gulf Stream, and some of them eventually wash up on the west coast of Ireland. The 17 They call them, the locals call them Virgin Mary beans, or Nicker beans, and appreciate them as birthing charms. Known as other places as sea beans, sword beans, Mackay beans, and Queensland beans. And if anybody wants to look at them, you can find them in case 143A in, in the Sympathetic Magic Collection. Now I've got a little few more things to say, just about really amulets and charms in the Pitt Rivers Museum. Now, I know I've mentioned some already. They display as a demonstration of superstitious customs. The collection of horse brasses shows objects once regarded as amulets, and with time the original idea has been forgotten and they've degenerated into mere ornaments. The same applies to the charms and amulets comprising part of the symphonic magic display. Cast of a stone implement regarded as a thunderbolt was found in Jersey in 1897. It was built into the house to prevent it being struck by lightning. Prophylactic stones include a piece of amber carried by a fisherman of Suffolk for his rheumatism, a vein veined water torn or water worn stone from Devon was carried to cure toothache, and another stone from Devon was rubbed on warts as an example of the transfer of virtue type of charm. It's another one integrating. This is another tooth charm, it's one that's in the Pit Rivers. No. And from Suffolk, a knuckle bone from a sheep was used as a cure for cramp and rheumatism. These can all be seen in the pit rivers. As a popular charm against rheumatism was carrying a potato in the pocket. And to be curative, they had to be stolen. <laughs> um, there may be a logical explanation for such superstitious practice, because it is now known. Um, Alan Davis wrote about it in the Pit Rivers newsletter. The eyes of potatoes contain atropine, which reputedly is a cure for rheumatism and may justify the belief. I'm not saying that magic's true, but there was always an element there, but some of it is quite sensible. And there's the figure 19 of the potato charm. There's the potato charm. Harry <laughs> Burchapman, Burgess of Cowley. Um, the truth about Mr. Burgess and Cowley, that he was some... Um, uh, I think we had a senior role within the university itself. <coughs> He's wandering around with his potato in his pocket. The next one is the figure 20. That is also there. Um, that comes from, that is the anti-inflammatory onion charm. It's a charm against cramp. It's cramp not a woody outgrowth common on the beach or ash trees and carried in the pocket for effect. Cramp bones. Uh, which is, there's an article in the Englishness uh, series in the Pit Rivers Museum on cramp bones. 
they have to be worn near the skin, they lose their power if they touch the ground. And the needle skin from Carlisle is prepared and sold as a cure for cramping rheumatism. There is evidence here because this is an onion charm. Onion is related to the garlic, and there is evidence that garlic and onion are efficacious to these days in hypercholesterolemia, but I don't think they're useful in cramp. Oh, nearly finished. Yeah, nearly done. The natural elements include a large briony root, which can be seen in the pit rules, bought in 1916 from a Headington labourer because of its resemblance to human shape, who believed it to be a mandrake and that it was magical. A child's call, or a fetal membrane, the amnion, left in situ on an amnion infant's head, that was thought to be a good omen and a charm against drowning. It's from Oxford. One from Oxford is found in St. Ed's in 1906 and is originally part of Henry Balfour's collection. Call or Kell, that had amuletic value for sailors and derived from the term silly how or silly holy how. And in France it's called the etre nequoth and means the person is very lucky. In Nelson's time there was a roaring trade in Portsmouth in uh, calls from children because it believed, they believed actually um, they wouldn't be drowned at sea. The children's calls belong to a group of amulets that include body parts as their representation. Similar charms include the dried tip of the human, human tongue, which E.B. Tyler collected and actually was actually carried well before 1897 as an amulet against disease in Tunbridge Wells. Though it's more usual to carry the tips of animal tongues for this purpose. Next one, figure 21. This is our mole's foot, pit with his mole's foot. It's a prophylactic amulet, feet of a mole, used originally to help erupt the teeth of children. But mole's feet were later used for all toothaches and to ward off cramp, and that was done in Sussex. The whole idea really is it's like for like. The shape of the mole's digging feet are very curved and they're regarded as due to cramp, and therefore carrying these will cure your own cramp. In other words, like cures like. But the whole point about the mole foot charm had to be cut from a live animal. You know, Patrick, the animal had to lose its feet while it was still alive. Pit River's mere specimen was carried in an old man's pocket in 1902. It came from Staffordshire, and it really he carried it, but he really thought that the cure was too thick. And in case 30B, put that on 32. These are silver serena. They're used specifically for the uh, evil eye. And the belief is that they're called Malocchia evil eye, they refer to the evil eye Malocchia. It's Neapolitan and they're actually believed to give amuletic protection against what they call the Jetatura, Jetatura being a brimmer of ill luck. And the Neapolitan for evil eye is Malocchia. And that is one of them. Yeah. In the sympathetic case, in the, in the sympathetic magic case, there's a stone from New Biggin on sea. It's one of a number from a fisherman's cottage, Northumberland, 
And it was used as a prophylactic against ill luck and witches. He had several of these hanging around the house, but this was the only one collected. In fact, it's the only item in the whole Pitt Rivers Museum that comes from Northumberland. And then the other one, he's the last one now. This is, in fact, the ancient picture. Now, this isn't in the Pitt Rivers Museum. This is a small blue amuletic figurine referred to as Catarsicaris. And where there is one in the Pitt Rivers Museum, it does happen to be this one. I just don't have the illustration for the Pitt Rivers one. He represents a dwarf protected god, Tarkos. He guards again, he guards the living, but he guards particularly children. And what appears to be an insignificant glazed turquoise figure is in fact a magical amulet. We see him in his head, isn't that? But he's about, you know. But he is supposed to be very, very powerful. Well, finally, I'll get to sort of summarise. Um, what I've shown is that homeopathy then is a cardinal principle in magical medicine. Magical amulets and charms have become, or I've really tried to get across, is they're silent witnesses to many beliefs, and they've become embedded in what we have to see as the social relations of their communities. Museum amulets and charms, they're part of a matrix through time and space. They act as a social glue, and this reaffirms a vital and continuous relationship between people and objects. Objects whose meaning has changed and still changes over time. And for many people, what were once vital magical objects, they're now mere curiosities. Once belief in a charm is lost, it loses its power and it loses its meaning. Well, amulets and charms are inanimate and, and they are possibly made from dead things. And the life, invest, life is invested in them, even though they're dead, life is invested in these dead objects by generations of people who believe that by doing so they could circumvent misfortune. So they use sympathetic and homeopathic magic. But I like to think that, especially having seen so many of them in the pit, that as far as these displays are concerned, these folklore beliefs, they spread far beyond the locus of the museum. In this context, I think that amulets and charms are the result of strategies and the active participation in creating and welding social relations. I think we're getting into some aspects of material culture here, but I hope so. Yeah. And basically, some people may detect tension between modernity and the display of magic artifacts in museum collections. Well, nevertheless, museum-displayed amulets and charms, despite modernity as far as I'm concerned, still exert their magic through wonder, curiosity, and for some a continuing belief. Okay. Thank you. Yes. <laughs>